Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is a conversation myself and Rory had with John Gibbons. John has been on the podcast a few times. He's done the Echo Sun reboot. Um, this was a great deep dive into where we are in terms of climate action, uh, how cli- climate denialism has kind of faded away. It's now climate delayism. And we talk a little bit about a better way forward. John really sets the stage for, for the challenges we face, but also paints a picture of how it can be done. It's a really, really excellent conversation. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you this is because that went out a few days ago already to our patrons. And if you want to get them as quickly as I can turn them around, they're all available in one place, one feed, plea free. You don't have to listen to this. Patreon.com forward slash tortoise The link is in this podcast that you're listening to right now. I'd love if some of you would just click on it, have a look around and see if there's a level that you're comfortable with keeping these mics on, content free, keeping us ad free. And for our part, we'll continue to try and advocate for the changes that we believe are necessary in this society. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. I won't delay any further. Enjoy the pod. Welcome to Reboot Republic, the podcast that goes behind the headlines and looks at the big issues in this republic of inequality. We are the podcast of solutions and the podcast of hope, and I'm your host, Rory Hearn. Delighted to be joined back in the podcast today by guests we had before, John Gibbons, who is an environmental um, journalist and campaigner and the founder of the climatechange.ie website. John, it's great to have you back on Reboot Republic. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Thanks, John. Listen, tough times and uh, tough topics. We're going to talk climate today and COP and why we're not copping on and why the system isn't copping on. And is capitalism actually compatible with making any sort of meaningful um, responses and reaction to climate change? Um, And I suppose, yeah, where is the politics and the public mood going? You know, how can we respond to climate change and ensure systematic change? with a public that is being battered by a cost of living crisis and rising inequality. So I think these are big questions and, and you know, concern about how do we make it, how do we make the change that's needed um, systematically and publicly and politics is so much there. I think people are looking at COP and they know what, you know, that such change is needed, but there's a deep sense of frustration and some people switching off, you know, young people have a, an 18-year-old son you know, sense of despair about future. Um, so I think there's a lot we need to we need to try and keep talking about it and, and figure out ways we can make that action and make that change. So I'm really looking forward to this. Tony, you want to talk about Ballymun and I how know. they're letting you back in on a once off basis. Uh, Rory, Rory we're going to we're going to Ballymun next Friday, the eighteenth, I believe it is. Oh, I'm and, always allowed in Ballymun, Tony. Yeah, well, you're 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 welcomed as, as as a hero, but nonetheless, I'm 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 going home and uh, come along. Tickets are event Eventbrite. It's like it's, I think it's fourteen quid for a ticket. If you're a Tortoise Shack member, it's about a tenner. But we're we're like we've cut. There's no margin here because the money's going back into the community fund. It is part of Wellfest. They've done it over the last few years online. They're doing it in person now, and we're getting the headline the Friday night. So come along and be great crack. And I do. I won't delay people any further other than to say I just think it's crazy that we're sitting down to have this conversation and it's with 16, 17 degrees in mid-November in, in Dublin, Rory. Um, yeah, and I think yeah. we have to be honest about what's happening right outside our windows right now. Yeah, and what, what the implications of it 
are and you know climate change is happening um and the other thing i just wanted to uh, give a shout out as well we have raised the roof is organizing a housing protest on the 26th of november in dublin of course climate and housing are intimately connected as well and we'll be talking about that um and also i'm down in limerick on the 24th of November for the launch of my book down there in the University of Limerick with Katu um, and the Postgrad Students Union and also then in Raised Roof in Limerick City. Um, and you can check that out. John, listen, um, in terms of COP, people are, you know, maybe some people have been tuning into what's been happening there. You know, is, is it the annual jamboree? Is there anything meaningful happening there? Is it something that is actually putting a bit of attention on it when it seems climate seems to be, you know, just goes off the headlines for a period and then comes back again? Does it have a value? Yeah, I suppose um, this process, as the name suggests, has been running uh, since about 1995. So we've, we're 27 in. And the COP basically means it's called the Conference of the Parties. Now, essentially, this is an intergovernmental process uh, that brings together new, almost 200 governments. And it's a funny old gathering, because if you think about it, many of those governments uh, are basically petrostates, right? We've got Saudi Arabia, we've got uh, many other, actual uh, Russia, of course, actual petrostates. Yeah. So in a sense, uh, you know, and yet, these are all brought together into a process, essentially, where where almost pretty much everything is done by by uh, unanimity, and any party can veto it. So it makes it an incredibly cumbersome process in terms of actually of, of, of moving forward. Having said that, and this is a point I keep coming back to, it is the only show in town, right? This is yeah. running for that that time now. People have asked me, and and I think it's a great question, you know. What's the point and, and is it working? Now, if the purpose of the COP, which when it was set up back in, in the early 90s, was uh, we knew at that stage that if we didn't basically change course, we were heading into really serious territory on climate. We knew that, okay? Back in the, well, we, science-wise, we knew it in the 70s and 80s, but but that translated into politics from about 1992 onwards, okay, from the, from the, the Rio summit. Now, then the, the whole COP process was set up to, to give us a mechanism to get governments talking together about this stuff. And it has run over that time. However, for me, the headline figure to think about when you think about COP is that in the 30-odd years since 1990-92, we have released more emissions into the global atmosphere than in all of human history prior to 1990. Okay? So wow. if, yeah, yeah uh, which is a hell of a thing. And I'll give you another one. Since 2005, right, which is not that long ago, one third of all the emissions in human history have happened since 2005. So we're in an exponential phase here. 2021, we release more emissions into the global atmosphere in 2021 than in any year in human history. And 2022 is on track to beat 2021. So uh, Antonio Guterres, the, the UN Secretary General, used the phrase, uh, I think yesterday, where he said that we're we're on a highway to climate hell and we're pressing our foot on the accelerator. Now, that's a wonderful piece of rhetoric, but unfortunately, he's not wrong. I mean, Rory, in terms of where we're at and where we're headed, um, there is a, a brick wall ahead, and that brick wall is basically the end of, of, of I guess civilization, as 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 we understand it, uh, is 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 coming down that that highway to climate hell because. Uh, for those maybe who are who don't follow this stuff closely, um, 
everything that we do, our political system, our economic system, our, our food systems, they're all predicated on a stable background climate system. We've mm. had that really for 10,000 yeah. years. And to put yeah. it in narrow terms, in, in those 10,000 years, the global average surface temperature hasn't gone up or down by more than one degree centigrade in, in that 10,000 year period. So while you, you've had many ice ages and you've had warming periods, they, they, they tended to be regional events. What we now have is the whole global surface. And by the way, that surface also includes the sea surface. So the whole globe is warming. It's now mm. warm to 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial. And again, that doesn't sound like a lot, but the, an analogy that I sometimes use uh, to try and make this easier to visualize is think of your own body temperature. Uh, you or I, assuming we're healthy, our current mm -hmm. body temperature is about 37 degrees. Yeah. If that rises to 38, 39 degrees, you're running a fever. And if it doesn't come back down, you're in deep, deep trouble. That's the direct analog for the, for the if you like, for the, the mm. core temperature of the earth. Mm. Now, that is not the earth's the temperature at, at the Earth's core, by the way, yes. so as in the temperature at the surface of the Earth. And basically, we've, we've pushed that, Rory, outside of anything that there's any human experience for. And, and have there been major changes in climatic conditions in the deep past? Absolutely. But you've got to go back 12,000 years before you've seen any change on the scale that we're looking at at the moment. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I I was listening to um, Mary Robinson on Morning Ireland during the week there, and she was talking about you know how do we convince people to change? And of course, there's so many audiences we're trying to convince to change. You know, there's the public, and then there's politicians, and then there's you know, can you convince you know the corporations, the fossil fuel industry? Can you convince them to change? Um, and this messaging, and is it is it better to do it through the doom or is it better to try and do it through hope? Um, what's your own take on that question? Yeah, I think um, somebody famously said, hope is not a strategy, right? Mm -hmm. I hear a lot about hope and people yeah. ask me, am I hopeful and so on? And, you know, hope by itself uh, is, 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 in my book, is simply hopium. It's a drug, a narcotic that we dose ourselves with, the mm. belief that somebody else is going to fix this thing for us. And yeah. I often hear it used in political circles. I hear it used in media circles. I even hear it among campaigners who sometimes get pissed off when people say, tell us, you know, set it out. People like me, I'm afraid, who kind of set out the, the grim facts. And they say, oh, no, that's very disabling, John. You know, you need to be more hopeful. Yeah. Now, yeah. when you show me action, I'll show you hope right? Hope yeah. springs from concrete action. Yeah. But hope without action, in my book, is delusional. Because, yeah. you know, essentially, this crisis is not going away. It's getting worse and worse. And in a worsening crisis, you ask the basic question, okay, what is driving the global thermostat? It is the addition of 50 billion tons of greenhouse gases a year, 50 billion tons, simple, simple think of a figure billion tons a week of additional greenhouse gases. Now, the, the CO2 element of those are long-acting gases, meaning that they will continue to be heating in the atmosphere for, for decades, even centuries into the future. We've also added vast amounts of methane into the, into the, the global climate. We've actually trebled the amount of methane in the global atmosphere since pre-industrial. And on CO2, we've increased that by 50% since pre-industrial. We have changed the, the fundamental physical chemistry of the global atmosphere has been changed by humans in the last 100 years, which is an incredible thing to say. I mean, 
And by the way, it isn't just the atmosphere. We've changed the chemistry of the world's oceans as well. We've disturbed natural systems that have preserved and maintained life on Earth for millions, tens of millions of years are basically falling apart. And we're sitting in the middle and wondering, should we be hopeful? Absolutely not. I think nobody has the right to be hopeful in this situation. And I think it's, you know, <laughs> that's how strongly I feel about it. Because, you know, I've, I remember meeting a person who shall remain nameless uh, back in 2010, and she was berating me for my, you know, downbeat attitude. And why mm. couldn't I be more hopeful? Yeah. Now, we had a conversation more recently, and I just said, so wh what's happened in the last 12 years? What's happened is we've added another half a trillion tons of heat-trapping gases to the atmosphere. So where is this hope getting us? How is, how is that translating into policy? And so the question then, John, is what will change it? I, I hate to say it, Rory, but um, first of all, you, in your intro, you said, you know, how do we persuade the, the, the fossil fuel companies? We won't. I mean, we will shut them down or they will shut us down. Mm. I mean, this is a fight to the end with these folks. I mean, people who are drunk, I think it was Kurt Vonnegut Jr. who said, uh, dear, I think the phrase he used, he said, dear future civilizations, please forgive us. Uh, we were rolling drunk on petroleum, right? Yeah. Petroleum yeah. has been the, the, the ultimate um, gift. It has given us this incredible power. We can, we can fly in the air. We can move things around the world. We can do all the rest. But the gift came with a curse. And the curse was, if you continue to use this gift, it will destroy not just you, but everything. It'll wipe it all out. We've known that the gift is a tainted gift for at least 50 years. The guys selling us the stuff have known it for at least 50 years. But guess what? It has made life so easy that we've just stayed with it. Now, it isn't as neutral as that. That sort of suggests that that was a choice. It's really important to point out that the fossil fuel industry and more recently other lobbyists have spent hundreds of millions bamboozling us, lying to us, buying media, uh, and basically pushing out a false narrative about the climate emergency. And I could show you any amount of material over the from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and much more recently, showing the downright lies spread by these people. So it isn't a case of just saying that they're resist that they're they don't want to change. They're actually spending money lying about the problem, which is a whole other level of hell. John, can I come in and say one thing about about hope? And I know it's probably vague, but did you watch Gustavo Petro's address to the UN, the new Colombian president? It was uh, it was absolutely brilliant. And what he said about, you know, they knowing have to have to shut down the Serohan mine, having to move away. And the phrase he said, which was really important, the sponge that absorbs the poison is useless. They prefer to throw the poisons into the atmosphere. There is there is some hope in knowing that, you know, we see the defeat of Bolsonaro. We see now uh, Petro coming into government. We see these. It is in those countries that we would have commonly referred to as the non-aligned countries or the developing world in many ways. But that is really hopeful in, in my in my guess. And again, I agree with you in, in, in our region it's it's absolutely the other way we see elon musk is the big story he took a company worth 44 billion and turned it into 88 billion in 10 days <laughs> like you know uh, so so there's no hope that the tech fellas are going to come with a solution for us but maybe maybe i'm naive but i just when i hear phrases like that i do think that there is scope for for change and it won't come from the sources that we maybe think it will you know th there's no there's no uh there's no bill gates guy coming to to fix this for us but maybe maybe it is coming from the non-aligned countries i think that's i think that's a fair point tony and i think part of the challenge that we face is 
a very jaded public. I mean, uh, Michal Martin, I'm just looking at his speech here. Um, he said, and I quote, our citizens will become increasingly cynical, weary and hopeless if words are not urgently matched by deeds, if commitments do not generate new realities. Now, that's a beautiful phrase. He's absolutely right. Um, the question happens when 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 he comes back uh, from Egypt and he's confronted by domestic lobbyists who insist on whatever sector it is that they're pushing uh, not meet its climate targets or be given special exemption, uh, we'll see how his rhetoric holds up. And But my point is, he's right. People have become jaded by this. They feel kind of exhausted and tired. And I think another thing that's happened, Tony, is that there's been a huge effort at dumping this onto the onto the individual, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was reading a piece the other day in the Financial Times and the guy, the particular guy, it's a slightly, slightly tongue-in-cheek article, but he's talking about how he's now taking cold showers for the environment and he's doing recycling stuff. He said he's he said he's spending up to 40 hours a week trying to be climate friendly, right? And again, he was obviously hamming it up a bit. But he said in conclusion, look, if you want to quote do the right thing in in our current system, it's next to impossible. You spend your whole life trying to do the right thing. He said we need to change the system that is making it the default that we do the wrong thing, right? And that's that's where I'm at. I'm far more interested in systemic change than I am in certainly no interest, by the way, in finger wagging about this, you know, the summer stuff. Oh, Michal Martin flew to Egypt. Well, he's a hypocrite, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And my answer on Twitter the other day to somebody who said that is, should he have gone there in a rowing boat? Would that make you feel better? Right. So I think we need to to watch out the old uh, virtue contests here and stick to the fact that the system which, by the way, didn't spring up out of thin air. It is a system that has been created by powerful interests. That system is failing us. The question, and maybe this comes back to what Rory said, is the question is, you know, is that system capable of changing in response to the evidence, or is it simply going to be forced to change by by circumstances? In other words, you know, did the Roman Empire uh, get together at one stage in in 300 AD and say, you know what, I think we've outstayed our welcome. We we should just fold up our tent and go home. I don't think that's how it works. Systems generally uh, either expand, contract or collapse. And the question really is how you manage that. And I think it's it's a really, really important question because when, I, when I'm thinking about and, you know, I come at this from, you know, the environmental and inequality lens. Um, and, you know, it's something that from the outset, like I've been involved in campaigning on environmental issues connected to um, a critique of financialized capitalism for 20 years. Um, and the point that we made all the way through was that a, a system based on the, cons- on the driving motor being endless consumption is of the material resources is a system that is going to destroy the environment and will continuously do, do so, that places no value on um, the environment, environment. And of course, then it, it does become financialized through the, the carbon credits and that. And then there's, a, there's an issue there. But it's, there is something about the economic model that is fundamentally flawed, I would argue, and runs against the needs of our planet and planetary boundaries and planetary necessities. And when we look at it, like in terms of, because, you know, we talk about fossil fuel industries, but it's not just fossil fuel industries. It's the biggest corporations in the world 
you know, the consumption of the mobile phone, the consumption of the, the, all the products we create, that we consume, the clothes, everything, that, you know, our whole system is based on us continuously buying more and more on, you know, inbuilt obsolescence. And it's all built around this constant, um, you know, consumption of material goods for profit. And that's what it's, you know, back for shareholders. And there is something wrong that we don't plan we don't look and sit down, okay, and say as a as a globe and even as countries and say, okay, what are the resources we have? How can we ensure that these are divided and used sustainably and equitably? Because that would require a completely different way of working than capitalism does. That is the case. Um, and I think to start with inequality, I think over the last several decades, capitalism has has made a proposition, I think, to the, if you like, part of its, its side of the social contract is, forget about inequality. Let's go for growth. Yeah. And the, the rising tide will rise all boats. But it turns out some people weren't in the boat at all. And the rising tide has simply swamped them. But I do believe that we were sold growth as an elixir to solve inequality. In other words, there'll be so much extra dosh. Mm-hmm. Yeah flushing around that even the poor would get some from the table, the so-called yeah. trickle-down, which I think has been uh, uh, well and truly debunked. So, and I think that growth has been a fantastic tool for capitalism to avoid the responsibility of addressing inequality and also about redistribution, because it comes back to really, it should come back to really fundamental things. What is society? What do we want from our societies? Yeah. Is it a great idea in our societies, that we have certain individuals who manage uh, to basically uh, corner billions of dollars or billions of euros of wealth is is that a good idea? And if we if we break that down, I mean, we we've seen very recently with our our sort of uh, madcap billionaires um, that these are not necessarily they might be very greedy people, but they're not necessarily any more brilliant than anybody else when when push comes to shove. But that yeah. that's as an aside. But I think. Within that, what we have to ask the question is, how do we want our societies to be shaped? And, 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 but particularly, we currently live, or whether we know it or not, we live inside a global carbon budget, by which I mean, we know exactly how much additional carbon can be emitted into the global atmosphere before we smash to 1.5 degrees, before we smash to 2 degrees. Beyond 2 degrees centigrade, basically, all bets are off and we're moving out of the realm of a habitable surface of the planet. So we know that, but we also know, and this is where the equality thing comes into it, we know that the bad guys, no, let me rephrase that, the rich guys have so monopolized so much of the wealth that the top 10% or even fewer of the world's population are currently accounting for well over 50% of the total global emissions. So it is the, the classic champagne glass shape that mm. we've seen, and we see it in so many areas, but in carbon inequality, it is, it, there's a colonialism to it as well, where the global south, the traditional colonial target, has been, has been hollowed out and has been left. Their, their, their assets have been stripped, moved to the global north, and they've been left basically with the sharp end of the climate stick. Now, that's, to my mind, that is a sort of a, a neo-colonialism, but it's also a carbon colonialism. We have colonized their fair share of the global atmospheric space, if that doesn't sound too uh, abstract a way of putting it, we have stolen their right to emit 
carbon to build their own prosperity. That pathway is gone. And that's why, for example, in COP, one of the one of the key things that's coming through is this thing called loss and damage, where the notion of basically, it isn't about charity, it's about compensation to uh, countries in the global south for the damage that has been wrought on them by the fact that countries in the rich north, like Ireland, have gone down a carbon-intensive development path that has had massive ecological and environmental and climatic consequences. And and it's absolutely, and, and it's really, um, you know, it's something that, you know, has to be looked at, the inequality question. And of course, there is inequality across a, across a global scale. And also importantly, and, and I sometimes think it's missing from the environmental discussion, is the inequality within the Western countries like, and, and the, the North, the global North, like Ireland, like the UK, like America, that when we're seeing the rise of the the right um, and the the Trumpians and the Johnsons and the the Tories and the whole you know climate skepticism, uh, not climate climate skepticism, utter climate denial, and saying you know oh it's too expensive to address this and this is just the the you know the Bill Gates conspiracy um, you know because that and that's gaining traction as a as a concept and idea that actually climate change is not a real issue and that really this is more you know wokeism and um, you know, that is out to take your basic things you have away from you because, um, you know, that's what they're about. And this is the liberal part of the liberal elite agenda um, and the Davos agenda. And I think that the way we have to counter that and the way we give hope, and I think there is it, is actually by offering a, a, a vision and a future whereby we would actually, people who are working people, people on middle incomes and lower incomes, actually can see a better world for themselves where they have housing where they have healthcare where they have education where they have decent income and that can all be achieved through a different way of delivering our economy in a much more sustainable way and particularly i think around the housing one and for example you know you talked about Michal Martin and his speech there and saying oh you know we're doing what we can and people are getting jaded people would not be jaded if you were giving 100% grants to retrofit homes if you were you know, spending billions retrofitting social housing, building, you know, sustainable green homes that people could feel, ordinary working people could feel, we're getting something out of this. But that would require a very different economic way of doing things again, which is my, but I think that could offer people hope. And I think you're right. And I think there has to be, as you say, I mean, when you set out the negative proposition here, you can't just leave it hanging in the air and say, well, there you go. Because, of course, that is a shortcut for people hitting the off switch and going, boom, nothing to do with me, far too late, etc. And it's often been said we need to be super careful about going from uh, indifference to despair without pausing in the middle for the action bit. Okay, And I, I think you're really spot on when you say, for example, right, let's just for a minute engage in a thought experiment to say about the kind of world that would be a climate safer world. Okay, that would be a world in which we had dramatically reduced air pollution. Let's just start with that. Seven million people a year uh, and vastly disproportionately impacts poorer people who are exposed to dangerous outdoor and indoor air pollution. So let's say we move away from fossil fuels and we alleviate air pollution. So the first thing is we've delivered a huge win to the health and well-being of the world's poor. We've increased their, their, their life expectancy and their life chances and so on. So we start with that. Then yeah. we move on to things like active transport. Let's, let's say that we managed 
to transition the world away from uh, having, I think it's something somewhere between one and two billion cars on the roads. So let's just say we managed to transition away from that towards active transport, public-based with, with uh, cycling, e-bikes, etc. Right. What would that do? Okay, it would shut down a very big industry. Well, boo-hoo. It would save individuals vast amounts of money. Yeah. A typical Irish family spends 10,000 euros a year running a car. And I've often thought people, you know, we're, we're sold the idea of a car as freedom. For many people, a car is a prison. It's a little box that costs you 10 grand a year that you have no choice but to run because you're locked into a system that forces you to get around in your in your little metal box that is costing you a load of money and isolating you from people around you. So again, if we can imagine a different future where, where, where that industry basically is history and we have moved towards active transport, suddenly what do we get? We get safer cities. We get better air quality. We get safer neighborhoods. We get people speaking with each other. I mean, I know this beginning to sound slightly utopian, but we get that effect that moves away from the dystopia that we have built. We have a sort of an urbanized dystopia and a ruralized dystopia of everybody isolated in their own mm. little hutch doing their own thing. So many of the, the issues and problems that are, if you like, arise from, from a carbon intensive. And by the way, so many of these were never developed to fulfill genuine human needs. And that's the frustrating yes, thing about yes, this. Absolutely. They were developed... I mean, it was yeah. considered, for example, at the end of the Second World War, in American industry in particular was so fantastically pr productive. It had been turning out bombers and tanks and all the rest that when the war finished, you had this massive industrial system with nothing to sell. And your average person, kind of as far as they were concerned, they had enough stuff. They were happy enough. So essentially, the advertising industry, the so-called madmen, had to come along and persuade people that they were unhappy and to, to use the buying of stuff and consumerism as a way of kind of mediating your sense of who you are, your happiness, and so on. And this, by the way, again, is not some kind of lefty analysis. This is straight from the advertising industry. There's a guy called Victor Liebau, 1955, a consumer uh, specialist, and he basically set the whole handbook out. He said, we have to essentially create unhappiness and then cash in on that unhappiness we have to uh, john I need to, I need to push in the the, the 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 mr gillette you would all know him as the guy who, who gave us the razor blade he famously mm -hmm. started off he wrote a book about uh, socialist utopian cities where people had what according to their needs and he coined the phrase the american dream and then mm. and then it became taken and stolen and turned into this idea of actually how you get on is by pushing it pushing on and entrepreneurialism you know at the at the greater good and it strikes me that the, you know what you're talking about sometimes it can sound um out there for people but like i had a conversation with the geriatrician uh, hospital consultant the matter hospital call colin burn a few days ago great guy and his his actual speciality was air air quality and so what we're talking about, we say this, it's not in some far off place. It's an extra 1500 less deaths a year in Ireland that we're actually we're actually tolerating now because of air air purity. And that's important to point out. It's happening right now in your community. Yeah. And, and if you had if you had environmentally uh, sustainable, like retrofitted, properly insulated homes for their poorest population, those who are own their home, who can't afford to retrofit it or those in social housing or rental housing. We know there's massive, that would have huge health benefits in terms of people living in those homes. There's absolutely no question about that. And the, 
there's a poster, by the way, or, or a, a cartoon, which is one of my favorites. And it basically, it's, it's like in a lecture theater. And the guy down on the, given the presentation, he's, he's a climate guy. And he's saying, you know, um, better air quality, uh, safer water, you know, uh, children's health improvement, et cetera, right? So he's listing off all the good things that can come from climate action. And up the back of the, the hall, there's a geezer saying, ha, huh, what if it's a, what if it's all a hoax and we create a better world for nothing, right? <laughs> Which to me is just perfect, right? So that is a great many, one. That's yeah, a great it is one. A great you have quote. to post that one. I will, but it's a great quote. And the point is, and this is what's so frustrating for people like me, almost all the steps that we're advocating make a better, cleaner, safer, more decent world, reducing gross inequality, reducing gross waste. Because let's be honest, the, the, the hyper-consumerism that we are gorging on in the West, what is that built on? The misery and exploitation of workers in the global south, which of course includes China, uh, and on the absolute thrashing of nature, the, the destruction on a scale that has never been countenanced before, tearing down forests, clearing out mining, strip mining, you name it, all of this. And, you know, what it is it creating? Benefit, it doesn't benefit the people buying and thinking, you know, they feel better for a a little while buying a new item of clothes and it's just, you know, people don't or whatever it is, the new product, because that's part of capitalism as well. It's, you know, getting over the alienation between us by saying, you know, consumerism will make us feel better when, of course, the problems are the lack of community, the inequality, the lack of connection, the lack of purpose, the the exploitation, all those things. That's, and John, it comes to it just because I am conscious of our time now and, you know, we can... I'll have you back on again very soon because I'm really, really enjoying this discussion. And I think it's so fundamental. And it's, it's, it's funny. When you go on to the media, right? I hear you on the media, do you know what I mean? You're on lots. You don't, because you're often debating the particular issue, you don't get to make these points that you're saying here. No. Do you think you, are you worried about saying these, some of these things in the media as how you would be perceived? And is that part of the problem as well? Uh, that's yeah an interesting way of putting it i mean i all of us when you work or when you engage in in the media you have to you know, you've you got to watch your p's and q's because there are you know if you step over certain lines you'll be you'll be ring fenced off as a you know out there extremist etc yeah. and once you've been labeled as that basically that that label never washes off right mm. and in fact i i was uh called uh or alluded to on a, on a tv program recently as a quote climate fanatic unquote right yeah not not a phrase i was overly happy with uh it was a ridiculous i'd be proud of being being a climate fanatic I, i'd rather not be i mean honestly i mean i'm you know i'm enthusiastic i'm a climate enthusiast and yeah and i'm particularly the, I'm fanatic, actually, the, the word fanatic was being used in a pejorative oh entirely 100 percent. yeah and, but 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 again the purpose of, of language like that is to push you outside of the the window <laughs> yeah. to to push you away from from being in the window of acceptable discussion mm. now I'm, I'm on this particular stump i suppose uh, to a lesser or greater extent for about 15 years yeah. and in that time i've seen the 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 what they call the overton window yeah. if you like expand quite considerably but explain uh, to people the overton window it's a really sorry yeah place. basically it's just a simple concept that the Overton window is this window through which we can sort of have discussion so let's say once upon a time the Overton window was like this Whereas excluded, for example, uh, that that people of a certain skin color, uh, it was acceptable for them to be your slave 
or that women, it was acceptable, for example, once upon a time, that women had no voting rights and were, yeah. were the chattels of men. Now, the Overton window was adjusted to say, well, actually, our view of the world, our view of society now has, is that that we no longer, that's no longer acceptable and we've moved that window of view. And and as I said, I often think of that when I'm in the climate communication space. I've been, and people like me, we've been trying to nudge the conversation into a much more, a much stronger, a much more radical uh, appraisal. And that does, by the way, include system change. And this is where people start getting a bit a bit jippy. They yeah. say, now you've gone too far, John. Yeah. I don't mind, I don't mind about the about recycling my my paper. And I'm I'm even using a wooden toothbrush, but now you want system change. I mean, come on, man, you know. But yeah. the reality is any objective analysis of the situation that we've got ourselves into is that we're only getting out of this through systemic change. And I think the leaders know that and they're running scared of it. And I I I have some sympathy for Michal Martin, who I gather is a decent human being. Yeah. Uh, yep. Yet he's in this situation where he's presiding at a time, well, for now anyway, uh, at a time where he's confronting the need for system change. I think his left brain knows that, but his right brain understands how the system works at the moment. And people are struggling to see from how we get from where we are to where we need to be. And I guess... I spend a lot of my time trying to think about that change. How do we make those transitions? Do you know from a micro scale, whether it's in transport or whether it's in uh, our diets, for example, they're going to have to change radically. But almost all these changes, Rory, I come back to this again and again. When you break them down, we just end up with a better world, right? Yeah. But the vested interest, the, the car manufacturers, the, the 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 big ag, whoever it is, the folks who have the money now are fighting like crazy to mm. keep us basically doing the same stupid things. And I think the cognitive dissonance between where, where we know we have to be and, and the pathway that we're taking, that road is getting wider and wider. And I think people are sensing it. And Tony said in the introduction about the crazy temperatures outside, you know, people are beginning to get a visceral feel. And I've often had this view of the whole climate thing that it's easy to understand the climate emergency in your head. It really is. You know, intellectually, I can explain it to anybody in 30 mm. minutes or less. At least I think I can. What's really difficult is to get it in your heart or in your viscera, where you realize that this basically means everything has to change. And I think people are struggling with that at the moment. They have intellectualized it, but they haven't yet been able to understand or to open themselves up what? to realizing. And I think people are naturally afraid of change too, by the way. Yeah, but they are absolutely. And all those things are in there. And I suppose just last question to push you a little bit. Mm. If it's system change is needed, how do we get system change, systemic change? Because I would, in a way, it's like politicians, politics has to change. You know, people have to change how they're doing things. But in a way, when we look at how does big systemic change, it often is through, you know, protests, through very large protests, through obviously people saying publicly we need systemic change through having solutions, alternative ways to do things, and then governments to implement that and, you know, private enterprise to be challenged and forced to be different. Like that's, you're talking about social movements are required. And obviously they are there. We have Extinction Rebellion, we have the climate movements, you know, they're there, but it's not, it's not getting it yet. What, what's your sense of what are the, that those sort of actions that are needed that yeah. people can do as well? I think... Okay, first of all, and you'll 
forgive me for paraphrasing um, Greta Thunberg, change is coming, right? Yeah. The whole system, the tectonic plates of our world are shifting rapidly beneath our feet. Our entire climate system is destabilizing. That's going to have all kinds of impacts. What I worry about is there are a lot of bad actors, fascists in particular, who will jump on this in time and basically promote things like eco-fascism, right? So I think there's the changes that are being wrought by ecological and climatic breakdown are going to ripple through. They're already rippling through many societies, but they're coming for us, right? They're coming for Western Europe. They're coming for the Western world. For example, the the, the climate migrant crisis alone, uh, the UN project that we could have up to a billion climate migrants within 30 years, a billion, right? Yeah. We also know that uh, areas of the world currently where, where 3 billion people currently live could become largely uninhabitable by 2070. So we know that this is going to mean massive disruption on a scale that we just haven't seen in, in human civilization, uh, certainly not in, 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 in the last thousand years. We've never had movements on, on this scale. They're going to threaten everything about what it means to run societies, economies, the whole thing. Globalization, for example, is likely to fail. I think it could be one of the first things that's likely to fail. And what we need to look at, I would suggest, is we need to basically reimagine how we're going to go forward. That I think we've become highly dependent. Uh, the way Ireland, for example, we can't even feed ourselves on this food island. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of stuff, practical things that I worry about. And I think we also need to, to think about our politics. But to, to your question, where does change come from? I see it coming from the street. I think as, as the evidence gets more overwhelming uh, in terms of natural disasters, sorry, natural is probably a wrong word, unnatural disasters. As yeah. we see more and more of those and people get more alarmed, then they will take to the street. But the question is, so will the bad actors, so will the fascists, so will the far right. They will try to capture people's fears and to turn them against immigrants, to turn them against the poor, to turn them against the other guy. And I think we're in for a, a rough ride ahead in battling to build a better world while our current world basically is unraveling. So we can, out of the ruins of that, we can either build a smaller, more modest, more humble future, or I think we stumble into, into uh, chaos and collapse. And at the moment, I'm I'm seeing those 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 two horses kind of running down the track side by side. It is you know this terrible uh, idea of, as I said, eco-fascism and all that goes with it. And you can see how that can how, how that can be be leveraged or the building of a better future. The building of a better future is a much a much harder job, a much more demanding job. Uh, but that's why I think folks who who get this now need to be getting involved in the vanguard of reimagining because let's let's take you know crap ideas like neoliberalism is a terrible idea it's we've known this for 50 60 years but the folks who developed that idea they 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 first incubated it in universities and in think tanks mm. and eventually they released it into the wild now i think we need to reimagine the future in a way that moves beyond those terrible ideas towards a better idea and it comes back to inclusivity reduction in inequality and also a sense even of a balancing of the relationship between humans and the rest of nature. Now, mm. that for some people, their eyes begin to roll when you say that. But we have to understand that we're one species among millions. Yeah, and we need absolutely. to be in the world with a, a lot more humility than we have now. At the moment, humans view the rest of nature as a resource. 
Yeah. Jesus, or they call it a natural resource. Everything we look at, we want to we want to set fire to, or eat, or burn down, or dig everything. And we need at some point, Rory, to back the hell off because we, for example, we need to make space for rewilding of nature. Not because we're tree huggers, but because if we don't give natural systems the space to recuperate, then they will accelerate climatic collapse. So the 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 your inner tree hugger is simply trying to save your life. Absolutely. John, uh, really fantastic. Really fantastic. And thank you so much for all the work you do. Um, thank you, Rory. No, no, I really appreciate it. And I know many, many people and our listeners will, will get a huge amount out of that. And do you know what? You ended up with hope. You got Oh, there. dear. I apologize in advance. <laughs> John, is a, John, John is a great communicator. Ah, no, it? brilliant. Bit of, bit of inspiring, but a challenge to us as well. That's what's yes. possible. That's mm. what's possible. Yeah. Can, can I come in with some really yeah. good, good news? Absolutely. That uh, the um, Patrick Costler, who took the case against CETA, uh, the the judges, the Supreme Court has ruled that they they can't pass it unless they go to the, back to the Oireachtas uh, and and change the legislation. Everybody came at him from all angles. Patrick continued to talk to us on this podcast. You know, Patrick, well done today, pal. You've um, you've, you've struck a blow, John. You said about the end of globalization. That's one of those issues. That is one of those key issues. We cannot say we're going to take climate action and then agree to import all of these goods at, at a level that's going to negate anything that you or I can do. So well done, Patrick. And, and it's nice to see it's not a, it's not a, it's not a win win, but it's 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 certainly something that's a positive to end on. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, thanks so much, John. And uh, we'll, we'll have you back again. Um it was really uh, so much there and uh, so much we can do and need to do. And um, yeah, great agenda for change that we will continue to promote here on Reboot Republic and continue to um, to fight for and campaign for. There is really... And, and support the work at patreon.com forward slash tortoise This has, with no ads, no sponsors, we completely rely on you guys. And oh, actually, Patrick just agreed he's going to come on and tell us about the ruling. So so you'll get that as well. So, so And see you, uh, see you on uh, in Dublin, November 26th for the protest and November 18th for Friday in Ballymun yes. uh, Reboot Republic Live and Echo Chamber Live looking Should forward be great. to it great night talk, 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 talk to you all thank you very much all the best <laughs>